Hi, I'm Jack Norton, and you're listening to Policy, Guns and Money. Coming up in this week's episode, in the wake of the Christchurch terror attack, we talk to two key thinkers in national security and counter-terrorism, ASPE's Executive Director Peter Jennings and Jacinta Carroll from the ANU's National Security College. We'll also hear about a new research program here at ASPE, the North and Australia Security, from program head John Coyne. First, let's hear Hannah Smith talking with Peter Jennings on his immediate reactions to the Christchurch attack. So welcome back, Peter, to the podcast. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, Last week, we stood pretty horrified with the news that yet another mass shooting uh, had occurred. However, this time it was definitely brought much closer to home with the news of the unspeakable mass killing in Christchurch. Um, Quite often here in Australia and other developed democracies, we tend to feel quite removed from these attacks, thinking it's an overseas issue that other countries have to deal with. Um, However, many of the Australians um, in these events, Christchurch was very close to home. How likely is it that Australia could experience a similar attack? I I think we have to assume that what happened uh, in Christchurch could very easily have happened in an Australian city. I don't really see any evidence that says to me that it would have been more, more difficult. Uh, so, for example, I know a number of Australians have said, well, we have tougher gun laws. And that's true, but in fact, the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission says that right now there's about a quarter of a million long arms, that is to say everything from rifles to shotguns to semi-automatic weapons, which are illicitly held out out in the Australian community. So we can't comfort ourselves that um, it's going to be harder for people to obtain weapons. That's just not the case. I think that, you know, Australia and New Zealand are so similar in terms of the kinds of societies we are and, and the ease of interchange that exists between them that, frankly, if it can happen in Christchurch, it can happen in Canberra, and uh, we shouldn't be feeling at all complacent about that. And I suppose, I mean, you mentioned the the response with gun laws um, that Australia had and how we're still having an issue with firearms. It's interesting looking at the response that Christchurch has had post this terrible event and looking at the really quick response at uh, banning semi-automatic and automatic weaponry. With the laws coming in, uh, it's looking like it's going to come in on the 11th of April. Do you think that countries like the US and other um, developed countries that are struggling with this gun control conversation, that this could be a similar tipping point for them? Or is this just another example that will sort of be forgotten quite quickly? Well, I th- you know, gun control is difficult. I, I was um, working in a senior way for the Howard government when the, the gun laws were changed in uh, more than 20 years ago now after the Port Arthur massacre. And, and I recall just how hard it was to get that legislation through. Of course, our our system is a little different. We've got state governments, uh, New Zealand doesn't have that. We've got an upper house of parliament, New Zealand doesn't have that. But we also engaged in more of a consultative exercise with people who owned guns. Mm. And New Zealand hasn't done that. And I think that, um, you know, that's going to play out in an interesting way in, in New Zealand society, because the effect of what Uh, Jacinda Ardern has done has been to say to people that legally currently own these weapons, you're now in possession of an illegal firearm and you have to hand it over to the police. Now, many people will do that. Others might not like that very quick reaction that's happened in the New Zealand context. So, you, you know, although it seems obvious to, I guess, most people, particularly people that don't have much to do with guns, that this is a sensible thing. Um, I wouldn't underestimate that this is going to be quite challenging for New Zealand to implement. 
Um, I would like to think that it would have some impact in the US, uh, but frankly, Hannah, I don't think that's the case because the Second Amendment is just such a, a sort of a p powerful cultural element of American thinking about the right to, to bear arms. Um, and I think, uh, frankly, New Zealand's a long way from the concerns of your average American. So I wouldn't hold out much hope that it would change things there. And what I do hope for New Zealand's sake is that this goes smoothly and that there isn't a sort of after the fact uh, backlash to the very quick way that the um, uh, Prime Minister is proposing to change the laws. You've mentioned some of the similarities that we've had between the New Zealand response and the former Australian response after the, the Port Arthur massacre. We also have quite a bit of right-wing extremism that does occur in Australia, but it's never quite reached that boiling point that we've seen with the Christchurch massacre. Do you think that this is a trend that we're starting to see with right-wing extremism, um, or is it something that's always been bubbling away underneath and this is just somebody taking advantage of the circumstances? There seems evidence to suggest that it is growing in terms of aggregate numbers of people that might be interested in right-wing extremist ideology, but I, I think it always has been in Australia to some extent or, or another. And I think back to an earlier period before 9-11 when, you know, there was a great deal of concern in this country about what might have been called right-wing extremism coming from uh, the former Yugoslavia, for example. In Australia right now, though, I think it's, it seems clear to me that there is now a larger number of people that are prepared, at least online, to associate themselves with right-wing ideas. And you do get uh, a sense of that online community kind of acting as a spur for like-minded people to get together and to sort of urge each other on with their uh, extremist views. And I think it's also of a piece with what we're seeing in Europe, in the UK, um, probably in in, uh, in North America as well. So this is something that we should be worried about. And um, I, I know that Australian police and Australian intelligence agencies are, uh, and I'm sure after the events in Christchurch that what will happen is those agencies will now be saying, are we putting sufficient resources to look at this uh, particular threat? Do we have all of these groups sufficiently covered? And, um, you know, this will come down, as it does always in these agencies, to a resource play. Um, you know, where, where is the money going to come from to support the extra analytical effort that will have to go into it? So often violent extremism is seen through the, the lens of religious violent extremism. And I guess with this example, we're starting to see the rise of the right wing. Um, we're starting to see some physical action from the right wing, not just rhetoric that's taking place. The vast majority of developed countries actively collaborate on removing religious propaganda from um, online websites. Um, you have webzines like Dabeek and Inspire um, that are pretty widely taken down and very quickly taken down um, by a number of different countries. Do you think that there has been an attitude um, of these extremist conversations being religiously based that have been unchecked for too long um, that has helped foster an acceptance of right-wing extremism to sort of come in from the side? I'm not sure, to be honest with you, Hannah. I mean, I think for a lot of what's happening on the extreme right, it's perhaps more racially motivated than religiously motivated. And, uh, you know, there seems to be an element of this in the Australian context around reclaiming white Australia, that, that, that type of thing. Um, I mean, that's no more acceptable than uh, extremism that's based on some sort of religious foundation. And, and um, I, I do think that... 
again, there's a conversation that government has to have with um, uh, the providers of um, the, the sort of the, the organisations that host um, online content uh, as to whether or not they've done enough. Um, you know, I, I tend to think we've been uh, frankly slow in dealing with the online problem all the way along. So just a few years ago, you know, there was very similar debates about how should the online world deal with beheading videos, of which, you know, unfortunately we were seeing significant numbers coming out mm. of the Middle East. Now it's about how do we deal with the, the footage of uh, the shootings inside the mosque. I mean, in both cases, my, uh, my answer would be we've got to get this stuff off you know, all channels, traditional channels as well as online channels. And I'm, I'm not persuaded that um, the, the companies that, that actually host these uh, channels have been as well prepared as they should have been to actually quickly and actively take this material down, accepting that it's much harder online. I, I accept that point, but but I don't think it's fair enough just to say, well, that this is something we should now tolerate. And I definitely think it's a it's a conversation that's taking place inside of that um, social media realm. Um, the need to be able to moderate this content. Mm -hmm. um, we saw that in the first twenty four hours of this event taking place, there was about one point five million um, instances of this video that was blocked from being uploaded to Facebook. So they're being inundated with just the sheer volume of content, and this is just from a single event. So I suppose. I guess the real question is, do you think the onus really is on these social media platforms to moderate the content that's uploaded to their sites or should it there be a, an outsourced model? Should there be some community moderators that come in rather than purely uh, a company focused? I, th I think we've got to take this in, in the broadest possible sense to say it's not just a, a company's fault, it's not just government's responsibilities. You know, when you talk about the that number of uh, times that that horrible video was uploaded, I think to myself, who are the, who are the people that are actually t making those choices to put this material on, online? You know, what, what are their judgments about the responsibilities that, that they have? personally. That's a conversation I think that we've all got to have. Um, it's it sort of become too easy to surf the net without taking any responsibilities for the gruesome dark bits that actually are available there. You know, I, I found myself watching that video probably within about 10 minutes of being asked by a newspaper to write an article about it. And I went online and I just thought, right, I need to know what's happening in Christchurch if I'm going to try to make some sort of informed commentary. And literally within about three clicks, you know, so uh, that material is sort of playing itself out in, in front of my eyes. I, I just think this is kind of like uh, a moment for time out for people to have a national conversation, an international conversation about is, is this the world that we want to live in? We sort of started the conversation about that at the beheading videos time a few years ago when IS was sort of rampaging through Iraq. But this seems so much closer to home because it's about New Zealanders and it's about an Australian. And um, I, I feel that um, we've got to take a serious way of having this conversation now. And I suppose it's interesting looking at New Zealand's, once again, their response to the footage. Um, and they've now criminalised uploading that particular footage to the internet. Um, with Last time I checked, um, two individuals have um, been charged with that offence. With governments banning content um, that they view as objectionable and, and threatening social media platforms with uh, different forms of fining um, or banning from the country, do you think this is a, a safe route for governments to go down? 
I, I don't know. I find myself, in all honesty, to be confused by it because, um, uh, you know, at the same time as that, those events were happening in New Zealand and uh, Jacinda Ardern was saying, I'm never going to name the name of the person that committed these these acts. What I know, of course, is that the police and intelligence agencies from many, many countries around the world will be looking at that stuff with the deepest forensic interest to try to extract all of the information they can about what's motivating that particular form of extremism. Reading the guy's 74-page um, uh, manifesto and, of course, subjecting him to what can only be considered to be pretty intense questioning over many months and weeks ahead to get into the mind of this murderer and to understand how this then links to an ideology. So you, you can't just say, let's not talk about it, let's not look at it. It is stuff that has to be subject to um, intelligent analysis if we're going to shut it down. And so I find myself in a complete quandary on on this, you know. I mean, do I say, well, as a researcher, it's okay for me to look at this stuff, but other people, they can't do it. You know, this really does bring some really very, very challenging questions for us all, I think, about how, how you deal with um, uh, such material and, you know, the kinds of responsibilities that governments and communities and families and individuals all have when, when, when it comes to how they interact with it. Certainly. And it definitely also brings to the forefront how images from these attacks and footage from these attacks can help perpetuate that cycle of violence. Um, we've seen there's definitely concerns of ISIS potentially being able to recruit from videos such as this, this being able to sort of reliven um, some of their more successful recruitment efforts mm. on um, the internet. Mm. Uh, we've also seen Turkey's President Erdogan um, has sparked some diplomatic confrontation and he's been using some of the footage at some of his rallies as a rallying point for his own um, election goals. Mm. How do we begin to tackle this issue of content being leveraged for both radicalising purposes and for political purposes? Well, I think the first point to make in this is... Um, isn't it interesting to see how these extremist groups can kind of egg each other on to become even more extremists? Um, and in a sense, their business models rely on each side being outraged at the extremes of sort of ideological differences. So um, a, a first message is it's time for those of us who are sensible centrists to kind of get together and, and, and to sort of stop this conversation from being dominated by those at the extreme ends of the, uh, of the spectrum. Um, th there is no doubt in my mind that um, IS and um, other um, Islamist extremist groups will be using this as a very potent recruitment video for bringing in uh, new fighters. Um, and we know that that is actually the path that a great many uh, radicalised Islamist extremists took, which is they radicalised online by looking at uh, images of Muslims being killed in various wars over, over the last sort of 20 years or so. So I, regrettably, I think that um, it's highly likely that we'll see almost a spike in uh, recruitment on the uh, Islamist extremist side and retaliations that will take place. And that makes Erdogan's use of this 
at campaign rallies, I, I think truly the most scurrilous political act that I think I have seen you know, in many a long year, that someone who's actually the president of a country, the president of a NATO country, is using this type of material to sort of spur anger on the part of the Turkish population. It is just unconscionable. And, um, you know, there, there really ought to be international consequences for that type of behaviour directed towards Turkey. Uh, because this is a you know a country that frankly should know better. So it's certainly a tricky issue um, for us to be navigating in this day and age, especially with the amplifying effect of technology. And it'll definitely be interesting to see how uh, we begin to tackle this in the weeks and months ahead. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure, and uh, sorry to be talking about such uh, terrible issues. But I think the more sensible people like us can talk about it, the, the better for Australia and New Zealand. And I spoke with Jacinta Carroll of the ANU's National Security College about the challenges encountering right-wing extremism. Jacinta, thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here, Jack. Uh, I wanted to start by asking you, so it's emerged that the Christchurch gunman travelled extensively in Europe and made a yeah. significant donation to an Austrian group known as the Identitarians. That's only come out in the, in the last day or two. Is it time and... Has law enforcement and the authorities been considering right-wing extremism as more of a global problem or is this something that's only really newly emerged? Yeah, look, it's a great question on a very complex issue. And, of course, as you've, as you've noted, one of the most surprising things for people in Australia and New Zealand in particular was finding out that this terrible attack was undertaken in the name of white supremacy, it appears, and right-wing extremism, because it's really not something that we're used to seeing in our political landscape or our, our terrorist threat landscape. And firstly, on the domestic front, I would say, have investigators been looking at right-wing extremism? Well, uh, we had it as recently as October 2018 at Senate Estimates from Duncan Lewis, um, Director General of Security, head of ASIO, um, confirming not only that ASIO and um, others involved in counterterrorism, the police in various jurisdictions, had been investigating right-wing extremism as terrorist issues, but also he, he mentioned this because there was a concerning increase in activity and a push by these groups to recruit more people. He made a point of being cautious about the numbers, the relative numbers, saying that they were starting from a very low base and we can kind of see that in the incidents that have come to public light. Of course, the ones he's talking about, the ongoing investigations are ones we, we don't hear about the cases. We don't know who's involved or the particular groups um, until there is a, a charge laid. Uh, but interestingly, um, as, as you know, since mid-2014, when uh, Australia's terrorist threat alert level was raised to high, now probable, but the, the, the same the same level, just different yeah. names. We've had 15 mass casualty plots disrupted. And one of those, not it appears in the in the um, aftermath of Christchurch, it's not it's not well known publicly, but one of those 15 was a right-wing extremist attack. So an intention to undertake a bombing attack uh, and use of firearms in Melbourne. And that case is proceeding through the courts. It's probably receiving a bit more attention now as public awareness has come to right-wing extremism. But I'd go back in the Australian context to we do know it's an issue. We do know that counterterrorism authorities have been investigating it. However, identifying that there is such a strong Australian link to 
an extreme terrorist attack in our own region, as we saw in Christchurch, means that all of these agencies will be going back to their investigative priorities and their coverage of these communities to see is there something else we're missing and do we need to put more resources on it. They'll do that in the, the normal way that they prioritise investigations. But, of course, again, as, as you noted, significant issue with right-wing extremism is its global reach. Uh, it shares that in common with Islamist Islamist terrorism as well. Uh, so it is concerning to see that something that has really a, a small group of followers in Australia, again, like Islamist extremism, we don't have that many people who follow, but there's this um, significant movement that is incubated online and, of course, fostered by person-to-person linkages. I think we'll see a lot come out of the investigations into this person and his connections, particularly his connections into Europe, uh, the travel that you've spoken about. We've heard of him going to, I think at the moment, um, Austria, Hungary, Romania, uh, Bulgaria, France and others just in the last couple of years and uh, self-describing in this very unusual document that he produced, this this so-called manifesto, that this had a significant impact on him. I think it it, it is uh, behoves the government to give the public an update on where those things are going. Of course, we won't be able to hear about individual investigations until there's charges. But there is a concern, I think, in our community to make sure that these things are being looked at as a priority and also being given enough resources. And so Andrew Little, the New Zealand minister responsible for their security services, he's said that uh, those services had about 30 to 40 people under monitoring. And I know there's sort of instances saying, you know, using the term watch list or what that actually may or may not mean, but they had 30 to 40 people Mm. that they had uh, under surveillance in some form or other and that they only really started to look at the right-wing extremism side in the middle of last year. Would that be similar to the situation in Australia or would that be perhaps a bit behind where the Australian response Yeah, well, certainly on the record, um, we know that Australian counterterrorism authorities have been investigating, have been publicly talking about investigating right-wing extremists for a number of years. The case in Melbourne where there's a person facing charges is um, started in 2016. He was arrested. So certainly um, they've always been on the radar and we do have a history of right-wing extremism in this country, of of course, um, as most countries do. Uh, The the popularity of the groups has waxed and waned. Uh, At the time, in the, the sort of the 2000s, Uh, These were very, very small groups of um, sometimes only one or two people, sometimes half a dozen people, um, not coordinating as a group, um, fighting between themselves, uh, a lot of name changes. And I think while there was concern and there was just keeping an eye on these things from an authority's perspective, two things of interest. One is identifying that that a group or an individual is a threat, they've got to have intent and capability. And just talking about something on its own won't reach that legal threshold to assess that they're a threat, but also to be able to investigate them further. So has the capability of these groups increased in Australia recently? Are they, I know you said their numbers are small, mm. but are they growing? Mm. Um, well, they, Duncan Lewis has said that they are they are seeking to grow and that they're concerned that there there is more happening. We have seen that in that the case in Victoria, of course, that there was someone who was trying to obtain firearms and develop explosive devices, and that's concerning because that's what we saw in New Zealand. Of course, the focus is on the weapons that uh, the firearms that this person used, 
which he would not be able to obtain easily or legally in Australia, uh, or not all of them. But also, concerningly, there were a couple of improvised explosive devices, so booby-trapped cars. And what we know, particularly from Islamist terrorists, is that to be able to do that, you have to be sharing technical information with others who've successfully done it. Um, so a couple of things about that, very concerning to see that that kind of knowledge or, te or technical expertise is in Australia and New Zealand or being shared here. But also concerning to know that, well, if that's being shared, that means there are links to other groups that may have greater capability. Uh, in, in, a, in another way, if we think of Marawi in the southern Philippines, uh, we did know that there's been a conflict, an internal um, insurgency there for some decades, but the injection by ISIS Central in the Middle East of money, plans uh, and people saw you know, around a dozen separate insurgent groups suddenly combine under this one banner and successfully take a city of 200,000 people. Uh, so that, that was a game changer there. We're concerned about, well, what might these links of capability do to change the environment in Australia to be one where terrorists of all types may have more capability? And you mentioned some parallels between right-wing and Islamist extremism. Are there some tactics, techniques in terms of countering that, that basically you could use the same tactics uh, for each one? Yeah, great question. Um, so th there are lots of things that um, these groups have in common, and of course they have more in common with each other than they do with mainstream society. And those sorts of things are having a very uh, binary view of the world. Typically there's a very clear and simplistic historic reference to explain the way the world was when it was at, at certain points in time that they choose to say, well, it was great then. Uh, historically inaccurate, of course, very selective, but they look to that and then they also transpose that into the future and say there's a day when we'll have something like that again. In the state of, in, in the case of ISIS or Al-Qaeda, it's um, a, a great days of, of a so-called so caliphate. So having one before, having one, having one in the future. Uh, for white supremacists, it's uh, this convoluted ideal of, of an all-white European society. The methodology of any kind of propaganda, you have to bring people into a world where they only hear about that and, and everything in the world, all current affairs, are then filtered through that lens to be explained in that way. So getting to your point of how do we counter that, um, many of the methods are the same. Educate about the history, about religion, uh, actually talk. I think we could do it a bit better in, um, in our country in explaining uh, why, for example, Australia is involved in conflicts in the Middle East and in Afghanistan. These are things that are used in very simple throwaway lines by propagandists for Islamists to explain why Australia should be a target of terrorist attacks. And perhaps we mightn't do enough to explain why this is actually part of Australia's international responsibility. Um, the dozens of nations around the world, Muslim uh, and other, who are involved in the fight against terrorism and the, very, uh, the many and varied things that we're doing in our region to counter terrorism. One, one thing that's really interesting, that there's a, there's a whole bunch of different things that are done in countries around the world, counter-narratives actually making sure that when propaganda comes out that there's a very clear um, rejection of that with a statement of fact. And there's a lot of work being done online by various governments but also by community groups doing that themselves. Research into countering violent extremism, though, says that there's 
it's it's difficult to ever measure the effectiveness of this, whether yeah. you're trying to counter a right-wing ideology or a left-wing ideology, if you're trying to uh, take one individual and, and take them through a, a, a disengagement process from radicalisation, that's very intensive, it's resource intensive, you can't do that to everyone who might be at, at risk of radicalisation. So that begs the question of what else can you do that is not just focused on the bad guys, on the terrorists? And some of the best research uh, at the moment comes from sociology and it says it's about resilience theory. Yep. And resilience theory says governments and communities need to be mindful of how they project about their communities, particularly those who might be at risk. And, of course, um, in the aftermath of an incident, really think carefully about how you talk. So, um, more, sorry, more broadly, yeah. does that mean that the tone of debate within a country, say, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the level of Islamophobia in public debate, within Australia, is that something that could feed both into uh, potentially radicalising people on the Islamist side, but also radicalising people on the right or far right who may have extreme Islamophobic tendencies and help to further entrench that uh, within the public debate? Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I have to tell you that the, the, the research and, and some of the commentary around this varies. Uh, in liberal democracies like ours, uh, there's a very strong push on ensuring that there's free speech, uh, but in, but also the responsibility to uh, of the individual in how do I how do I speak and how do I modulate that. And one of the really useful things that's come out of Christchurch, uh, particularly in in our two countries, is a very mature debate. Uh, I've been surprised even by some of the extreme shock jocks on the right and and some of the extreme on the left who've been self-reflecting in the media about whether what they have been doing has been helpful or not. I don't expect there'll be a major change in that area, but it's a sign of a really healthy civil society to be talking about that. And that's probably injected something we've been missing in the middle. I would say in the research into, into terrorists and what causes someone to, to follow a particular line, it's very rare that it's just popular debate or populist debate in a vibrant civil society like Australia's. What we do see, though, is that once people are um, finding a narrative that they agree with more in that, that extreme end, then they will see any debate and, again, selectively choose to listen to, for example, um, Pauline Hanson and Fraser Anning as representatives of Australian politics rather than representatives of, you know, whatever, yeah, one nation polling at about 7%. And you do see a bit of that coming out of Christchurch, that even in the debate around what's the impact of populism, I've been a bit disappointed to see some of some of the debates criticising the Australian government about Tampa, which happened a very long time ago on one side, very uh, high level of attention given to our far-right political groups. So it's... The criticism um, of that far-right discussion isn't helpful either, so I think we need to bring it back to a more sensible debate. Jacinda Ardern has actually displayed that, and that's a really good model. She hasn't got into the who's to blame, othering the community that was affected, talking about how they might have brought that on themselves, quote-unquote, which we sometimes sadly do here. And this is where she's gone straight into saying, um, you're my people. Um, we are all members of the same community and this is violence and it shouldn't happen. That's been incredibly powerful because it's taken the wind out of any 
real impact that propagandists might be able to make out of it. Um, they've tried to anyway, um, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and um, Al-Shabaab and AQIM, as well as right-wing um, groups in Australia and in Europe have vibrantly been talking about this. But there's very little support for seeing what happened in New Zealand as being what either of these groups want to portray it as. Um, in a, you know, sadly, coming out you know, for the, the tragedy, one of the good things coming out of this is that um, New Zealand is presenting as a very unified and very strong community. Uh, and that's the greatest thing you can do to counter violent extremism. Probably an important note to end on. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Finally, Jen Feely spoke to John Coyne about the establishment of a new research program here at ASPE, focusing on the critical role of Australia's North in national security. Hi, John. Hi, Jen. So, ASPE's recently set up the Northern Australia Research Program here with some funding from the Northern Territory Government. I'm curious, because it was set up just before I started here at ASPE, about what prompted the establishment of this particular program and why it's important right now for ASPE's research. The North and, national, and Australia's National Security Program is a multi-year program that we've developed with sponsorship from the Northern Territory to maintain and drive a consistent discussion around Defence of Australia and the importance of Northern Australia to national security as well as Defence of the Nation. It's a multifaceted program. It's delivered through a range of um, different mechanisms. So, you know, we've got some very regular contributions in what we're calling the north of, of 26 degrees south series with our ASPE strategist. And it's secondly, it, it will become over the years a series of, of harder research or applied policy research around specific defence and national security issues. But it shouldn't just be seen and viewed as a program focused on defence. It's a program that's focused on national security and the importance of the North to Australia across a range of different facets. You know, it includes defence, but just as importantly includes our relationships across the region with various um, regional partners and countries. It really finds, um, and this is a long story, it finds its, its origins in around 1986. So in terms of Defence of Australia and where we are today, it all started in 86 with a review that was done um, for the then Defence Minister, Kim Beasley, and it was done by Professor Ball Dib from the Australian National University. And he really revolutionised Australian thinking at the time in terms of regional security and national security. He looked forward and said, you know, the world was dominated by global powers and global competition, but we were a long way away from that. Um, and he foresaw that we faced a region with instability and uncertainty, but he felt that we had about 10 years warning or that we would have 10 years warning of a, of a conflict. Fast forward three decades later, and all the things that Professor Dib had talked about in relation to, you know, how do we defend Australia, uh, in many cases have actually got worse. So uh, once upon a time, uh, the strategic competition in a global sense was between Russia and the US, Russia and the West. We were a long way away from it. Um, it touched upon us, but we're a long way away. Today we see a world where we have a rising China, an increasingly aggressive Russia, and things are a lot closer to home in terms of maritime aggression and maritime assertion in terms of the One Belt, One Road initiative. We see a very assertive China in the region. And where we once thought as a country in terms of our national security that we would have 10 years warning, uh, it's much less the case, we think. And the chances in the globe of a sort of a global miscalculation 
are really increasing. So as a result of that, it's time to revisit a lot of the assumptions that underpinned our, our national defence strategies of defending this continent. So I wanted to pick up on your mention of the DIB report because obviously it was quite a catalyst for changing of thought within defence. Since then, how do you think it's been implemented or do you think we still have quite a long way to go? Um, look, I think that we had in the first sort of decade following the DIB review, the Defence Force marched north. Um, you know, we saw a whole, for, a whole formation in terms of the army move north into Darwin, so the 1st Brigade. We saw a strengthening of the regional force surveillance units to maintain um, very active surveillance of the land components in Australia. Um, we saw the movement and creation of a number of bare bones bases, uh, collection capabilities. Uh, we saw the maturation of uh, the Jindalee over the horizon radar. Um, you know, we've seen the ring of steel that's come with in response to people smuggling. Um, so we, we really saw all this sort of progress. Unfortunately, um, you know, at the same time, I guess, with September 11 and, you know, some 17 years of fighting in conflicts in far-off lands in the Middle East, uh, we've seen a slight change in the Defence Force. And we've seen, in terms of formations, we've seen almost a halving of the size of one brigade. We've seen one armoured regiment's tanks move south to Adelaide. Uh, we've seen seven, the 7th Battalion Royal Australian Regiment move south. Um, we've seen a demise of the major... Um, Defence of Australia exercises like the Kangaroo series and then later the Crocodile series. So uh, we're at a strange point in time in the sense that um, all the things that Dib said were happening in our region um, are getting worse. And at this stage, sort of over the last seven or eight years, we're stepping back from the north of Australia. Um, and look, there's lots of reasons for that too. So, you know, the days of actually having to have physical presence are less. So, you know, you can fly surveillance aircraft from Adelaide to a base in Darwin to refuel and then do patrols. But um, that doesn't explain all of those moves. So it's a really, at the moment, since the 2016 white paper, there seems to be a widening gap between declaratory defence policy and what we actually do. Yeah, and I also think this conversation is also about broadening the conversation about defence and security out a little bit. So bringing in ideas such as like energy security and health security in the region as well. Do you think there are any particular priorities there that need to get looked at? Um, look, there are priorities, but I think that uh, what we need to do is pay, I guess, heed to what we've learnt over 100 years in terms of um, defence and national security policy in the North. Australia's always struggled with the concept of what to do with the North. Over the 100 years, we saw the old xenophobic approach, you know, of white Australia. We've seen weird suggestions like, you know, let's put a, 100 million Indians and in the North of Australia at one stage. That was around the 1930s. We've seen sporadic investments. So, you know, we sent ebbs and flows in the Commonwealth government's interest in the North, so, and, and quite often suffers from a really stopgap type approach. In terms of defence of the North, one of the biggest priorities is this. An economically and socially prosperous North is a secure North. Um, so all the factors that go into creating that are important to our national defence. And at the moment, you know, we see this sort of contraction in the northern economies as the mineral resource boom ends. You know, we see some short-termism. So, for instance, uh, and indeed in your own piece, you know, we, we, you raise this in terms, of, in terms of natural gas. You know, so we've got, you know, lots of investment going into natural gas. You know, there is a, in the short term likely to be a big economic market for that. But in the medium term, that's likely to dissipate. And in fact, competition will increase. So we need to look beyond that. So I think, you know, that long-term approach to defence of the North is important and is a key priority. 
Yeah, definitely. I'd agree. So I think that sums up the program. Do you have any concluding thoughts? Look, I think the thing with the, the program is a long-term journey, raising and maintaining interest in the North. So in terms of the Commonwealth government, in the terms of Australian history, interest in the defence of Australia and the North of Australia ebbs and it flows. 1930s, um, as Japan invaded Manchuria, you know, we see this explosive interest in defence of the North and, you know, all of a sudden we see military units formed up in the North to defend the Northern Territory. During World War II, again, you know, the bombing of Darwin and Broome. The key priority is for this program is that what it's about is maintaining the discussion of defence of Australia um, beyond just white papers. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.